spoken lately. I haven't thought about flying for a long time. I haven't dreamed of that moment when I was alone above the clouds for a long time. I haven't dreamed of waking up in a room surrounded in blue and green grass more years than I could dream of memory. I haven't walked back into the past or scratched on the doors of my origins, where it all came from, since I held up that cape for the last time. Return to Kent Town 10th year anniversary edition is a revised version of Ambien's first poetry book. The book can be purchased from Amazon and it contains numerous additional material. Spoken Hi, it's Andien from Spoken Label. Thank you today for streaming or downloading another episode of Spoken Label. Spoken Label was originally set up on beginning of the 2016 and as of speaking has currently nearly 300 sessions. The full archive is available on Spoken Label full stop bandcamp.com although it is available for free for stream and download if you wish i am always grateful for any sort of kind of donation to enable to me to keep the running costs this podcast going and enjoy take care bye-bye spoken label right amanda what are we doing today we're doing spoken label are you on as a guest today again amanda spoken label no this is spoken label but not as you know it or yeah. not as anyone else knows it <laughs> no no it's true this is something very different today because it's a, how do you describe Amanda a sub-series would you say or occasional extra series within Spoken Label yeah yeah and what we're doing today is yes we're very different this today but it's been I've been doing sorting out recording this over the last two three months really and it's called Top of the Label now it's going to be obviously featured within Spoken Label what is Top of the Label Amanda I'll let you tell people it's just a selection of your past guests reading out a poem or two. Yeah, and some cases, forthcoming guests as well. Now, uh, we've got 20 pieces lined up today, and obviously, like, bear with us, because this is going to be a three-hour show, I promise you that now, right? So, but um, the first poet we've got on today is, is a lady over in the Perth Hills of Australia, and this lady is called Skylar J. Winter. Now, with Skylar, she's actually on tour in England in October 2022. And the plan is, obviously, at the moment, to get her in for a spoken label, then to a session with us in October, and she sent over two pieces to us. So the first one is called When You Say. What did you think of this piece, Amanda? I really liked it. I thought it was really powerful, and it's just talking about how women are judged. Yeah, I thought it's a fantastic piece. There's a great one to start off with this today as well. So, over to Skylar. When You Say by Skylar J. Winter. Since the Garden of Eden to present day, women have been labelled no matter how they behave. Witch, bitch, bewitcher, emotional, prone to hysteria, temptress, tease, temperamental, hopeless, helpless and our all-time favourite, hormonal. Diminishing anything we say to lessen intelligent or credible, yet incredibly, when you say... Until proven guilty, everyone has the right to be presumed innocent. You lack the intelligence to understand. Presumption of innocence does not make you innocent. When you say, here we go, another woman on the bandwagon of me too, do you honestly believe we would choose to make up a story placing us under public scrutiny for everyone to scrutinise and hypothesise about the part we had to play in some guy not keeping his hands to himself, his mouth shut or his pants zipped up? I don't think you realise the bravery required to step into an arena where you're less likely to be heard than fired, an arena where women remain defenceless as you build your defence with any historical evidence that will show her up as being a slut as if that will prove you're innocent. I don't think you realise the Me Too movement only exists because those with any kind of power insist on using it for their own gratuitous benefit. And let's not forget, it was your need to say Me Too at lunch with your fist bump and boys club that led you to engage in exploitive behaviour so you could trade not stories but facts of your escapades rendering women to their knees and backs as you back them into corners of no choice choices with your bribery and coercion. Remember, 
as your then jubilant cry of me too echoes down through time back to you, these women are exorcising the demons born of your misuse. They are exercising their right to no longer remain silent and no matter how much time's expired. Your presumption, they are lying, does not make them liars. That was fantastic, Amanda, wasn't it? Yeah. Really, really good that one. So yeah, it's a great start that because I'd like to I've not met I've not met Skyler yet. I've not even spoke to her on Zoom or anything. So she's she wants coming to our um, spoken word night in October, is it? Yes, she is, yes. yes. And we're gonna we're gonna see we're gonna take go down to watch her on the night before as well in October. We're gonna watch her at Randy Horton's night as well. Yeah. Double in double indemn double indemnity. <laughs> Sorry, Randy. <laughs> at the Peter's Gate tap and stop book. She's doing a longer set there as well. Actually, well worth watching, lady, I suspect. Okay. Next piece, Amanda. Do you want to tell people who's on next? Okay, so the next person normally does a lot of funny poems, or at least that's what I've seen, but this is a more serious one. Yeah. It's Nick Lovell. Yeah, now people wonder who Nick is. Nick is the co-host of All Beehive, which is a fantastic... I think I presume it's mostly it's a Zoom night. I, I know they have been doing some live stuff before that, and I think they had, are heading back in that to Nick and his co-host, Clive Osman. But this is a piece of magic. Really, what do you recommend? Is this a really moving piece what Nick's done here, isn't it? Yeah, I love the fact that it's like when obviously like now I've I've been known for like funny pieces and when I try to do serious pieces, I think they fall a bit flat. So I love the fact that he's done a really serious piece. Because yeah. I think people's poets should be sort of more well well rounded and sort of do different pieces and not just be known for one thing. Yeah, no, I agree. What we're gonna do, we'll play everyone here next point now and then we'll talk about it before moving on, okay? I wrote this last year after I had a couple of heart attacks and it just made me think a little bit about death. We study the sciences, arts and humanities, teach fashion, religion and other inanities, practice at dentistry, medicine, law, learn how to drive, how to write, how to draw. But for all the things taught, all the lessons gone by, never once do we learn the best way to die. See, it's the one thing that's certain, no way to avoid that day we take our last step out into the void, when we cash in our chips to buy one final round, when life's last illusions come crashing down. Should I be stoic and silent or weep, wail and cry? How on earth can I find out the best way to die? Will there be tubes, syringes and nurses or cold, cold hard, wet tarmac with traffic and curses? Just spare me the poets and their bloody verses. Will I be sane or will I be raving? Will my heart be stout or will it be craven? Will I be gross and bloated or trim, fit and spry when I discover the secret of the best way to die? How quick will it be? Will I struggle and linger until all movement is gone aside from one finger? Will I be fully conscious or simply sedated? Will it be all of a sudden or anticipated? Could I summon a priest, imam or rabbi? Would they help me discover the best way to die? This thought just won't go, it swims round in my head. After all, what's the point? I'll still be just as dead. And the way that I pass hardly sums up my life, nor the way I'm remembered by my children and wife. Still, I'll continue my quest from this search I can't shy until I seek out the best way to die. Last words are important for posterity's sake, so... Fuck it, or bollocks are probably a mistake. Should I prepare a speech, a phrase, just a word? But if no one's around, will it go unheard? It's become an obsession. There's no way that I can give up till I find out the best way to die. It's always unspoken and coated in mystery. Yet everyone's done it throughout human history. Though nothing is known, there's one thing that's certain. The performance is over. It's the final curtain. So I'll just take my last bow to the audience's cries and then maybe I'll have discovered the best way to die. Wow. Isn't that a great piece in it, man? That completely, isn't it? It's like it was... Now, if people are wondering, obviously, with Nick's piece here, this is talking about, as he said in his intro, but we had, he had a number of heart attacks last year and... Are actually to go and write about it in such a powerful way. I think do you think it's really brave writing that? 
Yeah, and as a writer, I think it helps you deal with stuff like that. Yeah, I do. I think it's a really good therapy piece, but it's also as well, it's a really good powerful. I think a lot of people can relate to, so it's, it's a fantastic piece, that next. Cheers, mate. Right, we've done the first two already, Amanda. On to number three, aren't we? Yeah. Yeah, next one's um, a poetry musician over in the Bolton area, originally from Waterford. When I first met this young gentleman... About 15 years ago now, I've known for quite a while actually. Keelan Cody, he has been featured on Smoke Label before a few years ago. I've got the feeling it was just one session, I don't recall him doing two, but who knows that I could be wrong. But he's actually included a poem in. I'm not actually wrote the title of this down, but it is. I've, I've got it down as it is never what you think. That was it, yeah. Now, what did you think to this piece, Amanda? I found this one quite a mysterious piece, this one. I thought it was an interesting piece. I've got a comment to mention afterwards, but I'll wait until you've played the poem. Yeah, we'll play the poem, play the poem then, but let them hear it, and then we can, we'll can we come straight back into it, definitely. It's never what you think. I am strange, but I'm not a stranger. I'm an outsider, but I'm not outside. I'm beastly, but I'm rarely the beast. I grew up in dirt, and I am dirt. But I have transformed the dirt, and I have grown like the weirdest plant that blossoms in the strangest times, always in the dark, where you can never see the words, but you can feel their meaning and the vibrations from the light cast by a moon long since dead, an outsider herself. We are all Isis when we need to be. We are Osiris at the worst possible times. But the world is Horus, and not Crowley's aeons, but something more beautiful, something eternal, like a spirit, like the son of the one who created us, the spirit of the world. We will never return to dust. We all will live forever. Pythagoras was wrong. Wow, excellent, excellent stuff, Caitlin. I was really interested in the first couple of lines in this piece, particularly when he started off on, I am a stranger, but not a stranger. It was like, there's a mystery behind this piece, really, for me, straight away. What did you think, Amanda? I think with some poetry, it's like, it can be difficult to, like, get what the meaning is, and there's a different meaning for everyone. Like, for me, it felt like a mix of religion and mythology. But whether yeah. that's what he, he, it means to him, it's, uh, it's not clear, but that's that's what I took from it. No, it's definitely, definitely with Keelan, because he does have some, it's a lovely lad, and you've got a chance to meet him, and certainly seen him, he's an unbelievable guitarist, one of the best live guitarists I've ever seen. But um, yeah, his poetry is always, it's layered in all kinds of influences that aren't necessarily the usual influences. And this is a real piece, I think it shows the maturity of his work, so that was tremendous stuff indeed. Right. Okay, Amanda. We better, should we move on to number four? Yeah. Yeah, this next one is a young lady over in the Manchester area. I think she's the next spoken label session artist on next weekend, actually, if my memory is correct. Her name is Lauren Temple. I'll read out a bit of a blurb to her, because obviously, because you, Amanda's not met this young lady before. She's um, described herself as, and she's certainly not, an emerging poet and writer from Manchester, and she's part of Young Identity, has been published in our anthology, Ecosystem of Fury. A lot of her work explores mental health, emotional inheritance, domestic abuse, neurodiversity and dementia. And what did you think? Should we just play tell man? Should we just play this book? Yeah. Yeah. The woman who floats above the river. She wants to dip her toes in, but she cannot. Invisible wings pull her upward. They flap like a hurricane. Her body is a medieval torture device, pulling her limbs apart. She doesn't know why the river's always called her, why her wings only work when she's in danger. This is the woman who floats above the river Bolin, 
where her dad used to sneak off to us as a boy to shoot birds and smoke cigarettes, throwing matches into the water to watch how fast light can extinguish and sink. She looks up at the sky, counts the clouds, and names her hopes after them. She looks down at the water, sees the algae grip to the riverbed and thinks, this is what safety must feel like. She wasn't always the woman who floats above the river. She used to take people there to cleanse them. Bathing together, they became the women of the river. The water against their wings was a mother's touch. But hers grew heavy like a sponge. She would lose her balance, collapsing into herself until she didn't know which way was up. Legend says she would disappear for days so that the women would stop searching for her. It was safer now, being the woman who floats above. Okay, this poem, to clarify, was called The Woman Who Floats Across the River. Now, it said to me a lot, this piece, man, it was about more the feminine side again. So I was wanting, I wanted to say a female voice of this with you. How did this, did this poem really say, what this poem say to you? There were little bits of this that felt metaphorical. And then it seemed like there were like snippets of memory and some of it was based on myths and it was all mixed together. I think it worked really well. Yeah, I thought it was a really good piece, this one. It was, she did this on this one and another one we're doing later on. It was two extra pieces for me for Spoken Label. And I thought myself, I need to put both these on because both really different pieces. You are right, this one's, it was a real cross between fact and fiction to me. I felt it stood up really, really well. I thought she's an excellent writer with that. So, no, definitely agree. Right, we're doing well here, aren't we? Yeah. <laughs> right, okay. Do you want to tell everybody who's on next? Right, the next one is by someone we both know, and it's Mike Booth, and his poem's called Benny Height. Hi there, I'm Mike Booth, and this is uh, a poem I wrote about my mum. My sister texted me about five or six years ago that she had my mum had asked to take a selfie. And I thought at the age of 92, that's quite an amazing thing. And it got my mind racing about how older people cope with technology. And we're really proud of the way my mum coped with technology and learned how to use a tablet and so on. And since I've written this, a lot of these things did come true. She got her head around some quite complex technology. So I hope you like it. Um, it's um, stolen a bit of a trick from a book called Katie Morag, which has Granny Mainland and Granny Island. And this one's called Granny High Tech. My mum's been posting selfies at the age of 92. She's becoming all tech savvy whilst I haven't got a clue. They say a dog can get too old to teach herself new tricks, but she's on Twitter, Instagram, even downloads from Netflix. It started in her 80s when the tablets which she took were traded in one high-tech day for a brand new iMac book. She logged onto her email, sent me messages so sweet, attaching photos from her phone, emojis, and a tweet. She went off to a night class, her notebook clutched in hand. The nice young chap who helped her made her understand the joys of new technology, Wi-Fi and the rest. She came back on a Segway in a day-glow high-vis vest. She worried she was losing it, but she'd got a memory stick and now it's all on iCloud. She can find it really quick. She opened up a channel on media sharing sites and now she's earning millions, a YouTube star overnight. She bought a brand new headset to live life virtually. The game she plays are tidying up and making scones for tea. She got herself a Fitbit for when she walks downstairs. Is always going on Fortnite where she gives the kids a scare. She splashed out on a bot vac, which helps her clean the house. I'm sure I saw it one day being ridden by a mouse. She bought a Bluetooth speaker for Radio 4 all day and then a new Alexa, which would do just what she'd say. But now she wants to upgrade. Even wants a fridge that speaks, tells you when to order milk and when your icebox leaks. She wants to put the heating on when popping down the shops by using all the fancy apps to add to her Dropbox. She even went on Tinder to help her light her fires. The nice young chap who turned up turned out to be a liar. Her profile went on Grinder to sharpen up her knives. Graham was an odd chap, he led some secret lives. But one thing about my mum, which still quite puzzles me, 
With all these fancy gadgets, she still can't work TV. And finding eject buttons or play on her hi-fi is such a massive struggle, it makes her really sigh. The thing about my mum is not her high-tech brain. She masters every new device while staying just the same. She doesn't need her bandwidth to show such love to all. She always asks how people are each time they make a call. The way she lives her real-world life can make me feel so proud. She makes such good connection with each one in a crowd. She's such a high-tech granny, updated every day, and we all think she's magic, so smart in every way. It reminds me a lot of you, obviously, like, you know yourself how old my dad is, and what my dad's like when do technology, and he on the internet and stuff like that. Not quite as good. <laughs> no, it's nowhere near as good. I mean, like, it was, I can imagine your mum being like this in some ways, actually, too, as well, to be Yeah, I don't think my mum's listening, so I can say that there was a point when she used to think that the whole internet was Yahoo, so if she couldn't get on Yahoo, the internet was broken. <laughs> <laughs> I, had, I had heard that story. <laughs> anyway, let's just move on, okay, because in case um, the lovely Mrs. Steele is listening, so we do apologise. Sorry, Mum. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even going to talk about talk. We're not even going to mention the websites my dad goes on. Right? <laughs> no, no, no problem. <laughs> we'll, we'll move on, right? So anyway, okay. Yeah, still in, we're over in Manchester again for our six artists here. And this is a young lady we met only reasonably, recently, Amanda, didn't we, as well? Yeah. Yeah, it's, um, it's a lovely young lady from, originally from Essex, down Essex Way, but she's got family over in Southern Ireland. And it's a crest every time we see her, Amanda, we're never quite sure where her accent's going to turn sometimes, is it? Yeah. That's why, because sometimes she's been on stage. Sounding now, she'd been in Southern Ireland or Dublin for a couple of weeks, and she comes back in her accent, pure Irish. And we met her at Word Central in Manchester, didn't we? Was it yeah. February this one? Wasn't it? It's reasonably recently. She so. read a really interesting story about having an extra was it an ear or an eye? I can't remember now. Ear, I think it was, and it yeah. went pretty crisply as well. <laughs> I remember seeing your face after that one. Oh, she's incredible. It's it's quickly CB now. Should we talk? Let's play the piece of beef, lamp. Yeah. Talk about it in a bit then, okay? The girl, well, I suppose we must call her a woman, as she does in fact fit at least several definitions of the term woman, or at least certainly more of them than definitions of the word girl. Though really she feels she has never quite attained the status of a woman, never fully managed to qualify or graduate into womanhood. In fact, feels more like a teenage boy in her current state, flat-chested and squalid, haunted by a lust rooted in the terrible fear that one will not, or perhaps cannot, do sex right, is deeply and irremediably a horrid little pervert. Though in fairness to the girl, or to some extent, woman, she reasons to herself as she sits with both hands in the loose soil of a flower bed. In fairness to herself, this may be a common problem faced by those who have never quite recovered from being attracted to others like them at a young age. Her sense of her own heredity, a latent and Catholic expression, of the need to avert one's gaze in the bra aisle of a clothes shop, lest she be suspected of looking too long or with intent. But the person of indeterminate status was trying to return her attention to the feelings experienced by her hands. She had dwelt too long in the box that she rented, and though it wasn't an unpleasant box, and she had now grown enough to apply for and receive a box that let light in this time, and so she was no longer weighted by a long depression, misread as philosophy but born from the late stages of vitamin D withdrawal, now she had returned at least somewhat to humanity. Now she found herself grappling with a new fear altogether. It had been last Thursday, she remembered, when she realised she had not touched anything for several weeks that was not formed of plastic. Her work required the tapping of plastic keys from the comfort of the plastic swivel chair in her kitchen. The clothes she wore, cheap and baggy and worn until death, were various designs of polyester blends. Bottles of shampoo, she realised, packets of food she opened, the handles of the knives she cooked with, her Tupperware containers, faux stone plastic countertops and faux metal plastic door handles. None of it had struck her as strange or malnourishing until awoken from a work-avoiding nap mid-Thursday by a terrible dream that grew into a a fear and a haunting, that she was losing the ribs on her fingers, that she was somehow evolving out of needing them, so that the whole world, should she ever come across it again, would feel smooth and unpleasant and dead as the plastic she had grown accustomed to. 
The smoothness of her home disgusted her then, and she resolved to leave it as soon as possible in order to stick her fingers in some things, give them a jolting by texture as a nod to them, a warning that they could not relax just yet, could not give up the ghosts and ignore their duty, and she would do this as soon as she could next be arsed. A small park, a mere 30-minute walk from her, seemed a prime location for some dermatological stimulation. The little green patch on Google Maps radiated such promise of feeling. Within a mere three to four days, she had accrued the energy to go and discover it, and she had, and now here she was, in a low squat with both hands submerged in mud, trying desperately to notice how it felt and to sustain her attention for a minute upon the clamminess and the healing wet textures that she had longed for. It did feel good, she thought, and the ten foot by four foot park was a pretty one and a worthy find, the nearest green space to her. And the grass that brushed her upper arms, too, was nice. It felt breakable and warm, and she wanted to rip at it. She did. She pulled up the grass and ripped at it and tore it with her hands and rubbed it between her palms, and that felt really nice. And so, here she sits now, once more, upon her kitchen chair, several weeks later, for, you see, the happenings of the interim have been excluded, I'm afraid, for refusing to fit the narrative, and they shan't be let back in until they can prove themselves relevant. Here she is at at length, typing once more upon the laptop of her profession, a steady beast, reliable, and not without a distant collegial charm, and she's typing up a report, or some such, of very little interest to any, herself included, when a sharp pain upon her palm calls itself to her attention. Upon inspection, it becomes clear to her that there is a stowaway, a small enough little creature of a seed, nestled deeply within the crevice of her line of Apollo. An illegal alien, she thinks. Aha! A parasite upon my person. No, thank you. And she went at it with both pair of tweezers and with gusto, the tweezers hidden within a drawer that featured also a range of preening and expurgating equipment, and the gusto one of righteous indignation. The tiny ovum, though, would not be moved. In fact, it seemed to burrow further in. She cursed then the chubbiness of her hands that its trenches would harbour such fugitives, to spite her, no doubt, and the slippery wetness of them that aided and abetted. While she was at it, she cursed the stubbiness of her fingers, which had let her down more than once, and her inability to ever really catch a tan. At length, she decided to leave the tiny seedling and let it fall out on its own. Surely, she reasoned, the continuous movement of her hands, their variety of poses and stretches, would inch it out slowly and rhythmically, and one day she would look down upon her palm once more, and, seeing it clear, would not even think to notice its absence. So she had resolved to act, or rather inact, and let the little fellow be a fool if he wished, on his own, without her bothering her head over him, and she looked away from her hand back towards the little plastic screen and began tapping once again. And indeed she did forget about the seed, within mere minutes, and it barely crept up into her head again for several days, the memory only nodding to her from time to time when hand was stretched too wide or clasping too firmly. The little beast would tip its cap to her with a gentle nudge of pain. Not content with this, after the passing of several days' worth of time, the bastard's gentle nudge had become something of a tap, and just after a week it became a shove. When she had been sufficiently cajoled into remembering the existence of her passenger, she looked down upon it once more and then looked closer at it. The many dogs and separate leads that pulled the sled of her brain at last made to run in one direction to pull her focus all at once to what she saw. The little seed had somehow done what seeds do and not fallen out but sprouted tiny legs beneath her skin. Half in, half out of her, the abject figure had taken root inside her body. The dark shapes of roots within her flesh circled like sharks around it, and its mouth was split open now, a hint of unfurled green waiting in its darkness. Right, okay, on this piece in question, Amanda, it's the wonderful Quigley CB, and it's a seed in the hand is worth two and a four, and that's a great title to start yeah. with. Now, what's always interesting about Quigley is, well, I'll tell, say a little bit of facts about her, because she's very much an emerging writer still, which is brilliant. Because um, she's basically like a short story, short and um, flash fiction writer. And she seems to have, doesn't she, regular reoccurring themes in her stories of religion, body parts and dirt. Yeah. And this is a great example of this piece, really straight away, isn't it? So. Yeah. And you know, as soon as she starts to read, you're going to get a strange story. And this was a strange story. And I love oh, strange stories. I know you. I, <laughs> I remember... This is, First time we got on Run at Speak Easy, didn't we? And she only been read once, so we want to get her back on again. I remember at the time saying to you, Amanda, and Mike, Mike Booth was on just before quickly. He introduced it, and we, we told him this. Her work reminds me of a much younger version of you because there's a 
there's an unorthodox about Quigley's work, isn't there, really? So. I think she's much more advanced than I was at that age. But I didn't really, like, go to, like, any nights or groups or anything like that. So it was just, I think it, my writing was a lot, so it was really raw back then. I think you look up in societies with nights and stuff like that, there's, with the internet, it wasn't round when you were Quigley's age. I think she's 23, isn't she? 24, It was around, but I didn't have access to it now, and it wasn't nearly as good as it is now. No, I agree. Same for me as well, like, it was that age, it... I went to one or two nights towards 30, 30 or 30, but no, the nights have improved and the quality, the accessibility is much easier on it. And what quickly is that she's an unbelievable writer. And what I find horrifying in some ways, the fact that she's not really been published yet, has she? Let alone bring a book out, so. Yeah. That's why, but she's certainly a real name to watch, I think, straight away of it. Right, okay. Do you want to tell people who's coming up next, Amanda? So the next one is by Rich Davenport, and it's called Don't Be Hippo. Hello, my friends. Today I must warn you of the danger of hippos. Um, I was playing Hungry Hippos with my niece and nephew recently, and although the hippos on that game look very cute, in real life hippos are the uh, biggest killers of humans in Africa. Uh, they live along rivers like the Zambezi in Africa, and um, yeah, they kill over 500 humans a year. Uh, another point of... Uh, Useless knowledge for this poem is that in France, flared trousers are called pantalon à pattes d'éléphant, which I think is something to do with elephant paw pants, something like that anyway, but this, it'll all become apparent as we go through. So this is called Don't Be Hypocritical. I never took a Hippocratic oath, never took a hippo home to meet my mother, because my hippo snogging days took place in Africa. I snogged my way up the Zambezi, one hippo after the other. I would take them out for dinner, buy them flowers, walk them home, to where the fathers would be waiting by the gate. It was all strictly platonic, we did not attempt to mate, because we feared the hippo-headed human mutants that we might create. The parents always eyed me with suspicion. It was clear that they did not approve of my hippo-snogging mission. Have you heard of the game Hungry Hippos? Perhaps you played it as a child. Well, real-life hippo-hunger is deadly. If you piss hippos off, they go wild. Hippos are aggressive, with razor-sharp teeth, and they're huge. If they charge, you'll be crushed underneath. They're the deadliest mammals in Africa. They kill 500 humans each year. They can bite you in half with their 20-inch teeth. They tried to kill me. I farted liquid fear. Now, the male hippo is territorial, and females guard their offspring, you see. Though my hippo romances were honourable, Ma and Pa Hippo did not agree. In the game, Hungry Hippos, the hippos eat marbles. In this case, Ma and Pa Hippo tried to eat my balls. They charged at me from two directions. I braced myself, ready to die. When out of the blue, something grabbed me and lifted me, to, lifted me towards the sky. I'd been grabbed by the trunk of a brave elephant who hid me up the leg of his bell-bottom pants. The hippos collided and collapsed and cussed. They lay their unconscious face down in the dust. And then swiftly, the elephant scampered away. Back at his house, I said, thank you, and, if I may, can I ask why you're wearing these bell-bottom pants? He said, yes, they're a gift from the President of France. In France, these trousers are not known as fleurs. They're pantalons à pattes d'éléphant over there. What a wonderful honour, such flattery, to have groovy fleured trousers named after me. I wiped my tears of joy with elephant-sized tissues, but my lawyer advised there were copyright issues. So he formed to discuss it with the French president, who agreed and decreed that I should be sent a lifetime supply of bell-bottom pants. Now, please, get off my leg. The hippos missed their chance. And you're safe here because the scared shitless of me is a plane ticket. Go home. Leave the hippo girls be. Thus ended my romantic hippo dream. And I said goodbye to my hippo harem. But I came home, but then a bachelor's life I chose. Because when you've had hippo loving, nothing else comes close. Stay safe, you cheeky scab. Okay, Amanda, what have you got to say about this piece? It's just as hilarious and crazy as his other poems or stories. Oh, oh it's mental. <laughs> now, with Rich, obviously, look a bit about him, obviously. He's, he's a comic poet and he's also, he originally was, he also was, I think he was a punk musician at one point as well, he was, would you believe? But he's originally from the Bolton area, but now I live in the Southport. 
And he bought a book out the other year, and he has been on spoken label for it as well. And I've forgotten to bring the book over, so. But his second book's out in September, so he's coming back on spoken label again for it. And I can't wait to read this. <laughs> Definitely with that one. So, but you're right, Amanda. Have you got anything to add about this piece? Um, no, it's just been funny. I mean, I don't pay, I don't promote bestiality or having a relationship with a hippo. But I don't no. think it, it's not really written like that. It's written in a more fun way. So yeah, he's he's such a clever, <laughs> such a clever writer. Really, really is. Can you hear them? You can actually. It was. Do you remember? There's worth noting if you ever get to see Rich Davenport live. Was first time we actually bought him on spoke speakeasy on the Zoom thing. He sold about what ten books that night or something, didn't he? I've never seen anybody do that. Neither <laughs> I. I thought just... it was amazing when I managed to sell one book in person. I've never done that again, but to sell 10 books online when nobody knows you. Yeah, it was just that fact he went on stage, read a few of his debut collection, and the audience was absolutely cracking up. Yeah. And it was like, but that's that of really clever, good writing. And it is because you can see his ex stand up comicness and his pieces sometimes. This is a tremendous piece. I hope this goes in his second book, certainly. So, right, Amanda. Anyway. Couple more pieces to wrap up on part one of this, and part the next piece is number eight. And that is, we're not there's nothing really could add in this one, really, is it? But we told talked about young lady before Lauren Temple just a few minutes ago. But this yeah. is a second piece, and it's red is a lucky color. Red is a lucky color. Our friendship is measured by the tightness of the red string she ties our pinkies together with. This is so you don't forget, she whispers softly in my ear. Her dad leans over a salt-cooked fish with its head still attached and hands us a small red envelope with money stuffed inside. Red is a lucky colour, he says proudly, looking at us in our matching dresses like dolls. I never felt like I had a culture until I fell into her arms, aged four in the playground. She told me that we would be best friends forever, made me pinky promise it. She teaches me Cantonese words on our lunch breaks, but all I can remember is Konghei Fat Choi because it has the word fat in it. I hide this from her, of course, because I don't want her to think I'm any more stupid than she already thinks I am. My favourite childhood memories are coloured red. No, all my childhood memories are red. The dim sum dumplings dipped in tomato ketchup as we avoid eye contact with the fish that stares up at us. Her dad eats it all with shame. You should never let food go to waste. He thought he had taught his daughter this. Nevertheless, he will not remember this day like that. When he sees me many years later, he will talk about the Chinese New Year where we didn't go to the parade. Instead, we went to his house, ate good food, and me and his daughter watched Barbie princess movies till bedtime. And then he asks me, why aren't you and her still friends? And the veins on my finger protrude like slugs and the marks of suffocation look deep like wrinkles now, but they feel like a sharp inward breath that I'll never let out. I don't know how to answer him. There was a lot that happened that night that he doesn't remember. My mind turns to red, like luck, like blood, like love, like blush cheeks, like hate, like dumplings dipped in tomato ketchup. That's a really good piece of mandra, isn't it? Do you think... Yeah. I don't want to go into too much about this because I know Lauren told me a bit about this piece when I recorded it and spoke a label for her at the time. But the tone of it is it's quite different to the first piece, isn't it? But yeah, so, and we both thought that's why we don't want to give too much away in this piece. But again, it's I think shows the versatility of this, this very, very good young writer. So we'll leave her at that this piece and we'll say just listen again, and she's excellent. So well, thank you again, Lauren, for piece number two. Now the next piece we've got, and this is the second to last one on uh, it's part one of Top of the Label, because we're doing them in two parts, people are wondering. Simple down to the fact is it's going to have to be uploaded onto like YouTube and Instagram in two parts for various reasons. So we're going to take a quick break after number 10 in a few minutes, and then 
we'll come back to it with the rest of them. Now, on to number nine. This is a gentleman. Um, you met this gentleman before me, Amanda, didn't you? Originally, you spoke to him, didn't you? Yeah, Peter met him virtually. Yeah, yeah, not, yeah virtually. Not offline, yeah. yeah. How did you first get become aware of Peter Humphreys then? Who would it on that? I don't know how he contacted me, but he contacted me because he bought his book out, Hong Kong Rocks. And I was doing the extracts at the time, which is like a little spin off of Reading in Bed. So I did an extract on there, but I also did a review on the main Reading in Bed podcast and the full review on Joy Scene because I used to write for them. Right, right. I want to tell you, you got all of them. I know you spoke to him for I did because, long story short, Peter runs a very, very good podcast called First Impressions, which is well worth subscribing to. And I spoke to, I got, Peter put a call out on Facebook on this one. I didn't know who he was. And I was, I listened to two or three of the podcasts for approaching. I really enjoyed it. And then I found out, didn't after I approached him about both our behalves that you'd actually done a review on his book, Hong Kong Rocks. Yeah. That's why. But I've not read the book, but I know you really, really enjoyed that at the time, didn't you? So. Yeah, he sent, he sent me a paperback from the post. And it's really nice getting a paperback from the post. Oh yeah, it's brilliant. It's just we, we both <laughs> people under we both love Kindles and love holding our tab, tablets, whatever we're reading on it. But to have a paperback and is it a ball game sometimes? And about Peter, people are wondering, we'll come on to that in a minute anyway. But obviously, like I want to play his extract first of all. And this is an extract from Hong Kong Rocks. And if memory is correct, it's chapter 16. Uh, I'm Peter Humphreys, a writer, editor, podcaster based in Lancaster. I'm going to be reading from chapter 16 of my uh, novel, Hong Kong Rocks. Uh, it's written from a variety of viewpoints, some um, expats, some uh, Hong Kongese, and this particular section is from the point of view of Kim. Her first port of call was the Manmo Temple in Shengwan, where she burnt incense to honor her grandmother, Lily, the family's last all-powerful matriarch. This neighbourhood had been ravaged by plague two centuries ago, her ancestors dropping like flies. Depending on your point of view, the British had either condemned the local population by corralling them in unsanitary conditions or saved them with their Western medicine and fancy sewerage system. As if in recognition of this dichotomy of views, roughly half of Kim's family continued to pine for the days of the Crown Colony, while the rest cautiously welcomed the advent of Chinese governorship. Whatever their political leanings, no one could disagree that the descendants of the plague survivors were being forced out of Shengwan by rabid gentrification. Not a single member of Kim's extended family could afford today's inflated rents. Her uncle's noodle shop had, be wild, had been wildly popular right up until its closure in 2014. Once he stopped increasing his prices at the same rate the landlord increased his, he was screwed. Kim had tried to talk him into trying his hand at selling something else, but noodles were all he knew. His sons had already left to pursue careers in Canada and the States, said they were too busy to help her change his mind. Now that Granny was dead, there was nothing to stop Kim's brother and remaining cousins from swallowing their pride and applying for public housing, but the waiting list was wrong, and they probably shared Kim's suspicion that Granny was watching for any shameful acts from behind a half-closed curtain. Yes, Kim had successfully hidden her pole dancing days from Granny, but that didn't mean she was positive Granny would never find out about them. Rest in peace, she whispered, before abandoning her mixed emotions, wish you were here, Granny. Next, she faced the prospect of giving a guitar lesson to a high-flying, high-rise dwelling creep in Kennedy Town. Typically, this paunchy pale face in ill-fitting designer jeans already thought he was twice as good as he would ever become on his Les Paul copy. Worse, his confidence extended to fantasies of seducing his long-suffering tutor. She groaned at the prospect of him using the heat as an excuse to unbutton his shirt, or the aircon as a reason for them to get cosy on his couch. Men. She'd had enough of their reptile brains. Only Frank gave her hope for the species, and soon he'd be gone. People are taken away all the time, said Jeannie, pouring her another Jack Daniels. I had a couple from the US in here. They've lost their son. Not dead, necessarily. They just don't know where he is. At least you and Frank can keep in contact until things are sorted out. You mean Jonathan's parents, don't you? Kim took a slug. Frank talks about him sometimes. Not much, but I know he likes the boy. Yes, 
He's still their little boy too. Parents worry. Imagine finding out your son or daughter was one of the kids leading the protests. Are you closing up today? Kim glanced at the clock above the bar. Not today. Jeannie picked up her mop and resumed damping the terracotta tiles. They need somewhere to come and talk after the marching's done. Somewhere to relax. How are the police these days? Wrapped around my finger, Jeannie smiled, admiring an imaginary wedding ring. What about you, Kim Tang? Are you taking care of yourself? I'm okay. It's Frank, Kim sighed. Maybe I've been too hard on him. I said he had grown numb. It's hard for them, these restless men, the artists especially, Jeannie told her. If they achieve their dreams young, they go crazy and drink or drug themselves to death. If they don't make it, they get depressed, go underwater, leave you snatching at the bubbles. But eventually, if they meet the right partner, they learn to accept their fate. He won't stay numb forever. Not Frank, not with you to love him. I know he reads his poetry in here sometimes. Kim noticed the crack in her voice. I know other times he sings and dances on the table. Why can't you do that with me? He's shy. Jeannie stopped mopping and came over. He's a shy extrovert. They all are, the British especially. That's why they created such a messed up empire. Except in Hong Kong, Kim said quietly. They did okay here. Jeannie put an arm around her. You've asked your parents about that, have you? What do you mean? Never mind. There's enough politics happening now to keep us busy. Another drink? One more. Kim looked back up at the clock. I haven't eaten yet. Jeannie grabbed a menu after splashing some more amber into Kim's glass. I'll order you a takeaway. The sushi up the road is pretty good. It's okay, she grimaced. My client gets me lunch. It's part of the deal. Right. Okay. Now, with Peter itself, I said for you, he does his own podcast, First Impressions. He's originally from, or currently lives in the Lancaster area. But he's clearly done a lot of travelling. Him and his wife lived in Hong Kong at one point. And there's certainly even the Peru-Argentina area at one point as well. So I said he's clearly a very, very well-educated travelled man. And this is a great extract. What did you think of this, Amanda? Yeah, yeah. I really enjoyed it. But I enjoyed the whole book. Obviously, as I like promoted it on three different places. <laughs> yeah, slightly, didn't you, that one? But no, it's... It's really, really, really well read this was. Now, with Peter himself, um, there is a podcast on the way of him at the moment. And the plan at the moment with that is going to be in the, if my memory is correct, it's going to be in the September time for Spoken Label. And it's a great session. You really have got to hear this one, guys, because he was absolutely incredible as he wasn't. The extracts he'd read, which part of is in this and part is also on Spoken Label, he was really, really good at doing accents. And he does do a bit of that in this, this extra commander as well, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah, it's great stuff. Now, we're going to wrap up now with part 10, uh, part uh, track number 10, I should say. We're back over to Australia again now, Amanda, aren't we, as well? So. Yeah, I'm not going to put on an Australian accent. No, I, would, I wouldn't. I'd be insulting if I tried with them, so that's for sure. But now, back to our friend we met at the beginning of the first half, Skylar J. Winter. Now, she's reading out a piece here called Obsession. She's at it again. My heart sinks. I swaddle my head tight within my pillow, compressing my cheeks so the flesh is forced downwards to wrinkle and bunch at my jaw. My jowls will not be thanking me in years to come. Night after night, I have assumed this position in an attempt to mute the incessant buzzing vibrating through the adjacent wall of the apartment next door. The noise, now begun, will continue intermittently for several hours. The woman next door has obsessive needs that must be met. I don't wish to imagine the degradation of the delicate pink flesh that suffers nightly under the humming, oscillating probe in her hand, but images of this hidden, soft place, grazed, bloody and swollen beyond any capability to endure further traffic, come anyway. I loosen my grip on my pillow, regretting it instantly. The low buzzing has been joined by another sound, not unexpected, but less easy to drown out. Haunting moans edged with a fragility that validate my conclusions on the condition of the flesh she seems so bent on destroying in search of satiating her misunderstood needs. I have painstakingly witnessed her condition worsen in recent weeks, and I know she needs to possess a will of iron to beat it, before it beats her. I know, if I attempt to silence her by tapping on the wall, the interruption will make things worse, take her back to the start. A sob 
caught and held halfway between chest and throat before exploding outwards in a raw bark comes through the wall, boring into my ear canals and tearing through my heart. Silence follows, and I start to count. It is only a matter of time, and she will have no choice but to begin again. 263 seconds. 23 seconds longer than last time, which was 13 seconds longer than the time before. She is trying to get the upper hand, get control over the uncontrollable. Tears prick at my eyes as I think of this morning when I left for work. She had been fumbling the lock on her apartment door with hands red raw, I knew, within her sterile gloves. Filled with compassion, I'd raised my eyes in the hope of meeting hers and conveying something. Not pity, but something that would help. The sight of her abused mouth, lips swollen, covered in sores and rubbed raw from the obsessive use of her electric toothbrush night after night, broke something I had not previously known existed deep in my soul. I am a useless observer, watching a disorder not wholly understood rip apart her life as she strips her delicate mouth with the compulsive, repetitive scrubbing required to quell her all-consuming panic that she missed a spot with her first, second or tenth attempt. Hers is the mouth I have dreamt of kissing my whole life but never will. The unavoidable germs inhabiting mine presenting an insurmountable barrier to me ever being more than a witness distant and silent to her pain and suffering. Okay, Amanda, what do you think of this piece? Because it was, it was, again, it's very dark, wasn't it, this piece? And I think it worked very... Yeah, I don't know if it's just my mind or if that's the way it was intended to, but it does start off sounding like something else, doesn't it? Yeah, it went... by the end, you see it's more of a sort of love poem to someone with OCD. Yeah, that's what I thought with that. I thought it was, obviously, we call it the poem Obsession, I thought we were going to get something that we didn't get in the piece. And I, I think that's good writing, actually, really. I think, yeah, yeah. So it's really a fair, fair play to Carla. We're looking forward to meet her in October. And I can, I can ask her lots of technical, horrible questions about her pieces. Yeah, she might not turn up now. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Scott. I'll be nice. I'm joking. Okay. Right, Amanda. Well, that's the end of part one, isn't it? Already? Yeah. So what we'll do, we'll do a quick break, guys and girls, and we'll come back with part two when we've got another 10 pieces for you. See you all in a minute. Say bye, Amanda. Bye, Amanda. <laughs> Spock on me.